0: Once upon a time in 2018, the Trump administration issued a zero-tolerance policy when it came to Mexicans crossing over the border into the U.S. This zero-tolerance policy was a contribution to his border protection plan, which was one of the primary platforms on which his campaign was run. The policy was actually very successful, and in just six weeks between the 19th of April and the end of May, nearly 2,000 children were separated from their adult guardians before crossing over the Mexican-American border. Detained children were held in detention centers in cages and given less than adequate living conditions. Now they're defecating on themselves with no clean diapers. Many haven't showered in weeks and their clothes are stained with mucus and urine. Additionally, we have kids seven or eight taking care of kids three or four and some, if not all of them don't know if or how they'll ever see their guardians again. These children aren't being given soap or toothbrushes or proper food. America has never seen anything like this before. If only that statement were true. While the nuances of this situation are distinct, this ain't the first time America was a crap show when it came to child imprisonment. Hello again and welcome to Meanwhile on the Farm where we get back to the subject at hand. Each episode, I find a story centered around race relations, unpack it, and then offer you some plausible and practical solutions on how you can get involved. Then we wrap it up by talking about something good that's happening. All right. Now, before I begin today's episode, I want to give a shout out to my dad and my mom. Uh, my parents are still together and driving each other crazy, and I love it, <laughs> but they hit me up and said words that every child longs to hear. I'm proud of you, and I love you. As a mini challenge today. Call somebody and tell them that you love them and that you're proud of them. Daddy, mama... I love y'all and I'm proud of y'all too. I think the greatest accomplishment that y'all ever had was having me. So you're hashtag blessed. (laughs) As I jump in, I just want you to know that I don't like telling people what to think, okay? My thing is to offer perspectives. There are things in this world that are obviously wrong. Um, I do have opinions about things and I'm happy to share them within reason. That said, in this episode, I'll be talking a lot about the Trump administration. Draw your own conclusions about what kind of job he's doing as president. That's not why I'm here. I'm here to talk about this particular subject with the, with the, with the kids, okay? Uh, so this episode won't feature any cussing or the N-word like my previous two episodes, so you're safe there. Well, you're safe at least from those words. Um, today, we're talking about the children being detained at the border and how this isn't an irregular thing for the United States. When this thing first came to light, there were tweets saying, you know, there's nothing American about tearing families apart. Uh, post on Facebook went up faster than no vacancy signs in a Palm Springs vacation rental a week before Coachella and people were mentally pacing back and forth saying like this isn't my America this isn't my America Right. not so fast I would like to issue a wake up call to anyone who's listening and you can issue a wake up call to other people now, I've stated this before in like post about this issue but it definitely is your America now to start this whole thing off I want to read to you uh, an excerpt from a book called The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. Uh, It was written by Dana Berry, who is the Oliver H. Radke Professor of History and African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. So this is an excerpt from her book. Many enslaved children have vivid memories of the sale experience. Marlita Pethy of Missouri recalled that when she was nine or ten years old, she was put up on the block to be sold. Of the stand, she recalled, it was just a piece cut out of a log, and it stood on one end. Her recollection about her price is even more telling. They was offered $600, but my mistress cried so much that Massa did not sell me. The mistress's attachment to her human property was so great in this case that the family decided not to sell Marlita. Such interventions were not always successful or helpful. Several enslaved people reported that their mistresses were as violent and sadistic as their husbands. In this case, we do not know if Marlita preferred to remain with her mistress. All we know is that Marlita was not sold and that decades later she remembered the monetary value she carried at auction. It made a deep impression on her young mind. The sights, sounds, and smell of slave auctions contributed to the horror of enslaved children's lives. Loud rhythmic bid calls echoing from the mouths of auctioneers competed with the chatter from potential buyers. The rattling of chains and the everyday noises of a town center. Joining these audible oddities was another unpleasant sound that could be heard above all others at the end of a sale. The cries of wailing mothers, overcome with grief after being separated from their children. At that moment, all children understood their status and experienced, for the first time, and likely not the last, the overwhelming heaviness of loss. Some parents had protected their children from the realities of enslavement, allowing them the innocence of childhood. However, at auction, the point of separation, children witnessed the full intensity of their parents' distress. The breaking up of families was devastating for the enslaved and also for some others who witnessed it. For many abolitionists, particularly visitors to the Deep South, the sound of shrieking mothers and crying babies and the sight of confused and frightened children were too much to bear. During one Louisiana auction where 149 enslaved people were sold at once, a northern abolitionist said that none of the enslaved people would raise his or her head and eyes to gaze out at the potential buyers in the audience. Charles Ball was four years old when separated from his mother. On the day of his sale, he was naked and never owned any clothes. His new owner dressed him, but Ball vividly recalled that his poor mother, who knew it might be the last time she saw her son, ran after him. She took him down from the horse and held him tight then wept loudly and bitterly over him. When it was time for him to leave, she walked along the road beside the horse, pleading with the owner not to take her son. And after being physically separated, his mother was whipped, and Ball remembered the cries of my poor parent as they became less audible the further he traveled. Despite the fading sounds of her cries, and as young as I was, Ball explained, the horrors of that day sank deeply into my heart. And even at this time, though, half a century has elapsed. The terrors of the scene return with painful vividness. In countless descriptions of auction scenes, auctioneers cannot be heard over the cries of enslaved parents. W.L. Bost of North Carolina vividly remembered that when he was a little boy, about 10 years old, a coffle of enslaved people stayed on his place on their way to a market. He saw that they nearly froze to death because they came in December before sales on the first day of January. The coffle included four or five of them chained together. It was so cold that he saw ice balls hanging on to the bottom of these women's dresses. All through the night, Bost explained, I could hear them mourning and praying. He remembered hearing the auctioneer cry him off as they stood on the block and saw weeping mothers calling for their children and husbands. Martha King also remembered being sold at five years old. She was placed on the auction block with her grandmother, mother, aunts, and uncles. I can remember it well, she told interviewers in the 1930s. A white man cried me off just like I was an animal or varmint or something. King even recalled her monetary value. Old man Davis gave him $300 for me. Their mother's reactions intensified enslaved children's understanding of separation. They witnessed their mother's devastation and helplessness. Fathers, if they were recognized and present, desperately tried to make deals for their families to stay together. These efforts were difficult because, although many sales begin with instructions that families would not be separated, market needs trumped conditions of sale. Families were often separate. So that was an excerpt from a book called The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. Again, it was written by uh, Dana Berry. Uh, a good book to dig into if you want to know more about that time in history. Now, this is the beginning of America, okay? This was the start, the foundation. When America was uh, trying to get his identity, that was a part of it. That is your America since the beginning. Children have been separated from their parents and families. Excuse me, sorry. Children of color have been separated from their parents and families. So when you think this situation with these children locked up in cages is unique, it's not. For whatever reason, it's not. Here's another example. The girls of the Leesburg Stockade. Now, not many people have heard of them. I mean, I found out about this story. Um, I can't even call it a story. I guess this situation uh, from a friend of mine a few years ago after she posted it on her Facebook page. And, and I think up until that point, she hadn't heard of it either, which is why she was posting it. Well, she's black. And after I read the story and I got in details and I wanted to know why the situation wasn't a part of my 12 year education in the public school system, because it was pretty important. And actually, it was so compelling that I've I've written a feature film about it, and right now I'm looking for a studio to uh, produce it. But there's a lot of research in it, and that research is is vast. But here's the story. Um, Back in July of 1963, and this was in Americus, Georgia, and the nearest city to Americus, major city is Atlanta, which is about 116 miles away. Um, But back in 1963, there were 35 girls, all black, that were thrown into jail without charges uh, because of a peaceful protest at a movie theater. Um, Some of these girls were as young as 12. So these girls had marched from a place uh, of worship called Freedom Baptist Church to the Martin Theater, which is a movie theater on Forsyth Street. And what they did was, instead of starting a line to come into uh, the theater from the back alley, which was quote, the way it was supposed to be done. They lined up to buy tickets at the front of the theater. Law enforcement was called and they came out and they attacked the girls. They actually ended up throwing them in jail. In the middle of the night, 15 of them were taken to this stockade that had been closed for years and years, okay? There were no beds, just cardboard boxes, no working toilet, no showers, no soap, no toothbrushes for 45 days, all right? And the thing is, nobody knew where they were, not their parents, not their siblings, other friends, just the people who brought them there, you know, in the back of a a windowless paddy wagon. So they were a little over 20 miles away from where they were originally arrested, which meant that they didn't even know where they were. These were kids, children. Now, I'm leaving out so many details. I mean, we could be here all day, but it's important to uh, history, but it's also important to the present. The fact is those children at the border in cages is not a new thing at all. Poor conditions is not a new thing, at all. And not many people know about the girls of the Leesburg Stockade, which is why I'm making a movie about it. Here's an interesting fact. Those girls were there in the heat of the summer. Some of them on their period. Some of them just starting their period, not showering. The smell of body odor and defecation just wafting in the air. During the march on Washington where MLK delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech. So they were there and he was there. Caging people and separating families is actually a distinct personality trait in the collected history of America. Here's another example. Back between 1942 and 1945, it was U.S. government policy that people of Japanese descent be absorbed into isolated camps. Right? This policy, um, which was called the Executive Order of 9066, uh, which was established by President Franklin Roosevelt during World War II, uh, it came as a counter to Pearl Harbor. Um, and the intention was to prevent espionage. And espionage is just an SAT word that means spying. So the idea was that if we see Japanese people in the States, it's possible that they could be spies. So we'll isolate them so that we can keep that on lockdown. All right. Uh, At the time, there were large populations of Japanese Americans in California, Washington, and Oregon. And it was in those places that they created large military zones. Executive order 9066 uh, required them to be relocated. I get the panic there, kind of, maybe a little, very little, As the president, you want to protect America. So you do what you can to make the people you serve feel safe, I guess. Is this why the zero tolerance policy was in place? To make America feel safe again? Well, yeah, Corey, protect our borders. I don't get out to every part of the United States on a daily basis, but I never recall anybody ever saying that they were afraid of Mexicans spying or overtaking the country. I mean, there was the infamous, they're bringing drugs, they're bringing rapists. But we definitely had plenty of that already in the States. I mean, just ask Brock Turner and Jacob Anderson. But I'm not sure that people were all against Mexico. I mean, not until this whole wall thing was brought up as an idea of protection based on terrorist attacks by non-whites, disregarding mass shootings by whites. Feel me? So, this detention center today, uh, under this zero tolerance program, was to strengthen the borders and make us feel safer from me- Mexicans? I'm confused. Anyway, back to the Japanese Americans. Japanese Americans, which means that they were already here, they were born in America. About 117,000 Japanese Americans were affected by all of this, all right? And Canada did the same thing. Uh, 21,000 Japanese residents were moved from Canada's West Coast. Uh, Even Mexico got on board. And there were 2,264 Japanese people moved from Peru, Brazil, Chile, Argentina to the U.S. Religious leaders, community leaders, it didn't matter. Like your assets were frozen, you were arrested without evidence, and you were transferred without being able to let your families know for the rest of the war. Homes were searched and and looted and Now, Hawaii had a large Japanese population as well, so some residents there were arrested and sent to camps. There was a lieutenant general by the name of John L. Demwitt. Sorry, DeWitt. (laughs) And he was absolutely afraid of Pearl Harbor happening again. So what he did was created a fake report, and in this fake report, he blamed damages to things on Japanese Americans. And just so you know, the truth came out that it was actually a bunch of cattle. He'd originally planned on blackballing the Italians and the Germans, but the Japanese were a hot topic. I mean, look at him, little opportunist, Lieutenant General John L. DeWitt, trying to get his, get his popular on. Well, it worked. He got his way. And anyone who was one 16th Japanese was evacuated, including 17,000 children. They were sent to configured fairgrounds, racetracks, horse stalls, cow sheds, a livestock exposition facility. For the record, in 1988, Congress attempted to apologize to any Japanese interns there with a $20,000 to $22,000 award. We're talking about three years between open and close. Now, conditions weren't awful, except for the occasional killing of a Japanese American in that place. Um, But the separations and encampment of individuals was still a thing. And that's what we're we're talking about. Let's talk about the kids who are locked up today. First of all, people out here tossing out the word immigrant like it's a three-day-old pair of athletic socks, like it's a, a filthy term that deserves to be ranked down there with a slur, like it's a bad thing. It's not. By definition, an immigrant is a person who comes to live permanently in a foreign country. That's it. No more, no less. The only requirement To be an immigrant is to go from one country to another with the intention of living there permanently. Like, in a few months, I will be an immigrant to Canada. I'm kidding, but sometimes I wish I wasn't. So that's an immigrant. Immigrants are doing nothing wrong. They just want to move, okay? Now, there is something called a migrant, which is someone who tries to come illegally. We'll get there. Well, I don't mind them coming over. I just want them to do it right. Okay, so you want them to do it right. You don't mind them coming over here. You don't mind them being here. You just want them to do it right. So in the meantime, you put them through hell like this? Is is that right? FYI, America is funding this. And now there's a request coming through for billions of dollars in relief. And the idea now is to build more of these things. Lord help us. How did this whole thing start? Let's take it back. All right, this is a short history of immigration detention found on FreedomForImmigrants.com. All right, the year was 1790. The Naturalization Act was born, and it said that the U.S. citizenship may be granted to free white persons of good moral character. That means half of y'all will already be immigrants to another country this effectively excluded native americans from whom land was stolen slaves indentured servants free blacks and asians eight years later in 1798 they the white people said you know what i think we need to add something to this so they came up with the alien and sedition act this act contained laws that would deport foreigners and make it hard for new immigrants to vote wait a minute that sounds very familiar. That was the 18th century. Then we enter into the 19th century. In 1823, Johnson versus Inventage. There was ruling that established the US government's sovereignty over Indian law and land based on the doctrine of discovery, AKA European colonization of the new world. Basically, let's make it legal to steal in this land that we stole, great. Good job guys naturally native americans were kind of upset imagine being in your home for years and then someone breaking into your windows and pushing you off your sofa and throwing out your photo albums and your grandmother's dishes and saying oh my bad you don't live here no more so in 1830 good old this ain't american america created the indian removal act this act set into motion decades of forced removals of cherokee Muscogee, seminole chickasaw choctaw and Ponca Native American nations from the Southeastern United States, known as the Trail of Tears. 20 years later, in 1850, there was the Fugitive Slave Act, provided for a federal bureaucratized system of returning slaves who had escaped from one state to another or territory. Oh, so you mad when your human property tries to be human, but it's okay for you to steal someone else's land. You got it. Now, 1850 was a good year for some ludicrous stuff because in that same year, the first privately run prison popped up. It was in California. The thing about a privately run prison is that there are no rules. The rules could be left up to whomever was privately running the prison. Guess who was in prison? It took 10 years of mismanagement, corruption, and escapes, but it was eventually returned to the state management. Okay, Corey, this history lesson is cute and all, but can we get back to talking about immigration? I am, and I have been. White people did not have this land. So, when they came here, they were immigrants. They were immigrants but they behaved like not nice people. I'll say that. So then was the problem then with letting people into the country that they were afraid that non-whites were going to go take over their toys and try to get their stuff back, which means loss of power for them. That's possible. The reason why I'm bringing all this up is to show you that still, this is nothing new. Like this has been happening, and I honestly think it's getting the attention that it's getting because of Donald J. Trump. Am I mad about the attention? Absolutely not. Attention is being drawn to a needed area, but there needs to be more action, and we'll get there. That's my favorite part. Now, a few of you listening may not know exactly how we today got to the children being in cages. Um, for those of us that already do know, bear with me. I mean, it's no secret that one of uh, President Trump's main platforms for his campaign had to do with supposed immigration reform and other topics associated with that. Um, You remember build that wall, right? It was a a chant that was in the same cadence as lock her up. Build that wall, lock her up. Um, Okay, well, a part of that was stopping illegal immigration or illegal migrants. Um, Because he wasn't getting money for his wall, he had to make good on his promise somehow to pro-wallers. So he enacted this zero-tolerance policy. Now, as I mentioned before, nearly 2,000 children were separated from their adult guardians. Nearly 2,000 children were separated from their adult guardians before crossing over the Mexican-American border. Um, Here are a few facts about what's going on there. There is no such law requiring children to be separated from their parents if they illegally cross the border. That might come as a surprise to you. Something else. The Flores Settlement Agreement. The Flores Settlement Agreement is active right now, and it's being challenged. Uh, this agreement, uh, which is actually named for Genny Lizette Flores, who was from El Salvador, um, it came about because in 1985, she tried to flee her country and enter the U.S. with her aunt. She was arrested at the border, and after being placed in a uh, juvenile detention center, she was handcuffed and strip-searched. Now, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, more commonly known as the INS, denied her aunt custody of Jenny because it didn't want to release her to a third-party adult, whatever that is. The American Civil Liberties Union filed a class action suit on behalf of Jenny and other minors, which eventually led to the Flores Agreement, and that was during the Clinton administration. Now, under this agreement, several obligations were pressed on the immigration authorities, um, and and these are pretty uh, broad categories. Here are three of the obligations. Number one, the government is required to release children from immigration detention without a necessary delay in order of preference, beginning with parents and including other adult relatives, as well as licensed programs willing to accept custody. OK, pretty cut and dry, pretty clear. Number two, with respect to children for whom a suitable placement is not immediately available, the government is obligated to place children in the least restrictive setting appropriate to their age and any special needs. I think that one deserves to be read again. With respect to children for whom a suitable placement is not immediately available, the government is obligated to place children in the least restrictive setting appropriate to their age and any special needs. Number three, the government is required to implement standards relating to the care and treatment of children in immigration detention. Wait, it sounds like they're breaking a law-ish. I mean, What's been happening is loopholes, all the loopholes and a, and a blatant disrespect for this agreement that was set up. Last fall, this administration proposed changes that would pretty much terminate the Flores Settlement Agreement. Uh, one of those changes is subjecting children to indefinite detention, as we're seeing here. So they're already taking that liberty. There are a bajillion other things that are being proposed, and this would be an 18-hour podcast on what those <laughs> thing changes are and uh, what they mean, but you can actually view a copy of what the florist agreement is um, if you uh, were to Google it online. No matter how you slice through it, though, it boils down to one thing. Immigrants are under fire, and when these children get to be reconnected with their parents and family members, any of the family members in the U.S. illegally more than likely won't come forward for the children out of fear that they'll be arrested and deported, and then what happens to the kids? That leads to longer stays for them, Possibly in those shelters. Here's the thing. Let's say that this thing blows over and it's time for children to be reconnected with their parents or or guardians. Now, I tried to find the number of kids being detained. They've lost count, so there isn't an accurate number. But still, just how do you suppose we do this? It's incredibly difficult for families to reunite once they make their way through this because there's no formal protocol that ensures that separated migrant families are deported back to their home country together that's right as of the recording of this podcast let me look at the date the 26th the june 26th there is no formal plan in place to figure out how to get these children reconnected and reunited with their parents as a matter of fact in existence right now there are at least 3 tender age shelters in south texas where the government has been placing the youngest migrant children the three centers are located in Combs, Raymondville, and Brownsville. Like, overall, the number of centers, it's increasing. Last week, the Trump administration announced the creation of a new, quote, tent city just outside of El Paso that would house between 1,000 and 5,000 kids. And the government is also reportedly construction a fourth tender, tender age uh, shelter located in an abandoned warehouse in Houston that would house up to 240 children. Well, Corey, President Trump did sign an executive order that was meant to stop the separation of children from families. Two things wrong with that. One, this means families will be jailed together. Now, I know that this country has some pretty strong patriots that won't really care about that. Fine, be that way. But number two, it does nothing for the children that have already been separated from their families. I'm going to tell you a story about a group of those kids that have been separated from their families. This has to do with the conditions. Uh, 25 students at the border were put in a cage. Six of them, lice. Um, they were given some lice shampoo and two combs. Now, for those non-pigmented members of the audience, if somebody with lice asked you to share your comb with them, you probably wouldn't. I mean, and they would probably sound like, hey, Tammy, get your own comb. But these six non-quarantine children had to share a comb. At some point through this process, one of the combs got lost. The Border Patrol was so mad that as punishment, they took away the kids' mats that they were sleeping on and those already sorry-ass aluminum blankets, and they were forced, some of them, to sleep on the floor. Wait a minute. Does that count as a cuss word? Dang it. I was doing good. I almost made it through, y'all. Sorry. But apparently conditions like these are fine, though. Like Sarah Fabian, a Trump uh, administration lawyer, who, by the way, got a federal judge to delay a deadline for reuniting 101 children under the age of five until after a weekend because she had to go dog sit. Okay, please tell me that you can hear my blood percolating and my eyes rolling back toward Sepulveda. I'm not even nowhere near Sepulveda. Yes, I said dog sit. This child of God said that sanitary conditions do not, I repeat, do not include sleep, soap, or toothbrushes. I would like to see... How her opinion would change if she hired a chef to prepare her food but not use soap when he washes his hands. If he's going to wash his hands at all, okay? Or her gynecologist. Like, no, 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 no. You know what? Don't wash your hands. Just get in there. Uh, yeah, just get in there. <laughs> I think she might have a problem with it. Then I like to take away her toothbrush, Okay. Um, Lawyers who visited uh, a detention center in El Paso, Texas, in June of 2019 uh, described that there was inadequate food, water, and sanitation for 250 minors. That means people under 18. They also described an 8-year-old caring for a small 4-year-old and that up to 25 children could have the flu. Some of the children held in detention arrived uh, at the border alone, while others were actually separated from families per the Trump administration policy that I mentioned earlier. At least 24 adults and six children have died in U.S. custody under these border policies. An interpretation of what Sarah is saying is it wasn't decided then what sanitary conditions meant. So it means what she's saying it means. She's also saying that the reason why the agreement doesn't say what sanitary conditions meant is because the parties who came up with the agreement then couldn't agree on what sanitary conditions meant. Now, there was a judge who happened to think that it wasn't defined because some things are just common sense. Like my grandmother said, baby, common sense ain't so common. She was right. I bet if these kids were gorillas or Bengal tigers or Sarah's dog, people would care. Maybe we can convince people that they are. I mean, they are already in cages. Now, I'm not talking about the listeners here who actually feel things inside of their heart. I know that there are people who are hearing this right now that are infuriated and are enraged. Um, And I I, I say that to you in solidarity. I bet if these kids were animals, there are people who aren't paying them mind, would actually start to pay them mind, which is a very sad indication of where we are right now. (laughs) You mad or no? All right, I'm going to get you to your action steps, but first, let's circle back around to this judge who let her off for doggy duty. This judge, who actually did have harsh words for the policy, uh, I'll give him that, Uh, his name is Judge Dana Sabraw. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's S-A-B-R-A-W. Now, I don't know why he let Sarah off the hook to attend to her dog and not this case. Uh, If you know me, you know I'm not heartless. I get it, but Judge Dana actually surprised me here, and here's why. Because his mother is Japanese, which means that he is Japanese. His parents met while his dad was stationary in Japan during the Korean War. Remember how we talked about Japanese Americans from before and how they were, you know? Judge Dana is ordering the Department of Health and Human Services to pay for the cost of reuniting Migrant parents with children. And Sarah's got so much things to say. She said that was a huge ask. Well, Sarah, you certainly didn't think it was a huge ask to separate them. We think you need to keep that same energy when you're in the process of correcting your mess. Y'all, these kids are going to write books. I mean, maybe. And it kind of makes me wonder what history books will say, if they're going to tell the complete truth. Because already, there are books in Texas that want to say that slavery wasn't the cause of the Civil War, that that was a side issue and that it was more about states' rights. Get real. I just wonder how they're going to record this in history. We have got to stay sensitized. We hear these stories all the time and we get desensitized and we go, oh, there it goes again. There it goes again. But we've got to stay sensitized. The desensitization to issues like this contributes intrinsically to the growth of said issues. The less sensitive we become, the less inclined we are to change it. So I share all of that information so that you are informed and so that you know why you're taking the action steps that I'm going to spell out for you. Yes, some of the children have been released, but that's just an improvement. And in life, when you improve, that's not the time to quit. That's the time to gain momentum, which means you got to press in harder. You can literally help reroute this country. And that's got to be a good feeling, okay? So here is the list. Action step number one, call Sarah Fabian, Senior Litigation Counsel at the Office of Immigration Litigation. I said, call her. You want a number? Like to hit? Hit go. 202-532-4824. Call girlfriend up. Have a little chat with her. Tell her what you think. Pretend like she's a drunk, swerving 18-wheeler with a decal on a bumper that says, how's my driving? It's awful. (laughs) Tell her what you think and tell her what you want to see happen. Tell her to stop using soap. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. But for real, hit her up and and let her know, hey, ma'am, sanitary conditions, it does include sleep, soap, and a toothbrush, at least, bare minimum. Okay? Again, her number is 202-532-4824. Not only can you call her, but you can call your local government officials. Uh, There's a website, govtrack.us, G-O-V-T-R-A-C-K dot U-S. Um, You go to that website and you type in your address and you find your local officials. And then once you find your congressional staffer, introduce yourself and say, Hi, my name is blank and my zip code is blank. Do not use my taxpayer money to provide even more funding for DHS. You have to let them know how you want to be represented and that you will not tolerate this type of treatment. Express your outrage. Number three, see about organizing a meeting with your elected officials when they're back in their home states and speak in person about these policies. You can do that. They are representing you. The key word is elected. They are elected by you. You put them there. You have the right to talk to them. Um, There's a website called southernborder.org, spelled just like it sounds, slash contact dash your dash legislator. Southernborder.org slash contact dash Your dash legislator. Uh, This is actually a great way to develop a relationship with them. Now, I'm not just going to throw you to the wolves. Visit aauw.org for step by step instructions on how to do that and how to prepare and all that good stuff. There's like that you go to that website and it literally says how to hold a meeting with your elected officials and it lays it out step by step. And there's even a report back section of the website so you can let everybody else know um, the improvements that you're making in your. Community. Uh, number four, text defund hate to eight seven seven eight seven seven. Defund, D-E-F-U-N-D, hate, H-A-T-E, all one word, to eight seven seven eight seven seven. 877 Remember, standard messaging rates apply. Uh, this action step is actually linked with United We Dream. Uh, United We Dream is the largest immigrant youth-led network, that, which is the young people getting involved. Um, They are youth dedicated to fighting to improve the lives of the youth themselves, their families, and communities. They envision a society that celebrates their diversity, and they believe in leading a multi-ethnic intersectional path to get there. They are committed to nonviolence and investing in leadership development, training, and mentorship, which is all amazing. Uh, Their website is unitedwedream.org. Be sure you spell united correctly. I am not going to lie. It was a few years before I learned that it wasn't you. Nine, Ted. (laughs) I was a kid, y'all. Leave me alone. Uh, Anyways, visit the website. There is a wonderful and fantastic assortment of ways to get involved with them. Uh, Once you text them, they will text you back with some other action steps like sharing on Facebook and Twitter. Um, Not for rage, but to get other people to act just like you did. Number five, there is a march happening on June 30th. Okay, The main demonstration is scheduled to take place from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C., So for those of you in or near D.C., make it happen. Go there. Show up. Be a presence. Um, There is a list of events, though, happening near you, so you can go and support out. Go to MC, M as in Mary, C as in Corey, um, mcsenate.gov. What you do is you go to that website, you type in where you are, and it gives you the nearest demonstration to where you are, so that way you don't have to fly across the country, unless you want to. Um, But Definitely check that out and, and get involved there. Uh, there are a ton of other resources as well, like the ACLU uh, immigrantjusticenow.org. I'm going to be posting all of these in the meanwhile at the farm uh, highlight section on Instagram, as well as those action steps from past episodes. So you can take a look at yourself and your leisure while you wear a glass of wine and changing the world and drinking at the same time. Uh, gosh, that was a lot. That's a lot. It's a lot, but it's important. Um, and honestly, you do not have the right to complain about what you tolerate. And now it's time for some black excellence. Thank you, thank you. Well, not thank you to me because it's actually not me. Um, if you haven't heard of the Ron Clark Academy based in Atlanta, Georgia, it's a predominantly black private school that was founded in 2007 by Ron Clark and Kim Bearden. It's received a lot of national attention because of uh, unorthodox but effective uh, teaching methods. Like they have kids dancing on tables and stuff. But more than the school are the people in it. One specific one, and this is the black excellence that I'm talking about, is uh, Michael Bonner. Michael is a third-grade teacher who has been honored on The Ellen Show for his positive and innovative educational approaches. In addition, his efforts to change the learning culture has gotten attention of NBC, the Ashton Kutcher Foundation, and Flocabulary. Uh, what Michael's doing is utilizing innovation to help counter the negative stereotypes with education. Since 2017, Michael has done almost 100 keynotes and breakout sessions to educators across the world. Uh, he's also an author who's written a children's book called Embrace It. If you want to congratulate him and drop him a note of encouragement or something, do it on his Instagram. Uh, his Instagram is Michael. M-I-C-H-A-E-L, Bonner, B-O-N-N-E-R, underscore, yeah. Uh, He's just an aware and cool guy. And from what I can tell, um, he's using every talent he has and every skill he has to make a positive difference in the lives of kids. So, So, Michael, we are wishing you the best first year at the Ron Clark Academy. And that concludes this episode of Meanwhile on the Farm. If you got this far, I'm definitely a fan of you. If you have a story that you think you might want me to unpack, send it my way. Let me check it out. If you have a story about some excellence that's showing up, pass that along as well. Meanwhile, on the farm at gmail.com. If you're not subscribed to Meanwhile on the Farm, why not? Like seriously, do it as soon as this is over. Now, I just want you to know when a new episode is out. Uh, right now, Meanwhile on the Farm is on seven platforms, including Spotify and Google Podcasts and whatever platform on which you're listening right now. Can you do me a favor and like and share this? Also, hop on over to IG and follow Meanwhile on the Farm. Meanwhile.on.the.farm to see what's coming around the bin, as well as stuff to keep you educated and keep you aware of what you can do while it seems the world is trying to snatch your wages, clear off. (laughs) And I'll be posting action steps by episode in the highlight section. I am a one-man show with researching and editing and recording, and that takes a good amount of time, and I'd love to get a research assistant. So if you feel so inclined to become a monthly sponsor, I will dance at the very next baby christening you attend. I promise. But hey, no pressure. Either way, I won't stop bringing you the goods. Again, I'm Corey. This was Meanwhile on the Farm. I appreciate you listening so much. There's a light on the inside of you, it out sometime because there's only one like it and i think that's where true beauty lies and remember if you're silent it speaks volumes peace